The story is told of a 19th century stuntman at Niagara Falls who said that he was going to push a wheelbarrow on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And so a crowd gathered around this man at the edge of the falls and he asked everyone. See, it's easy for us to agree with something that has no bearing on our lives. It's an easy thing for us to make declarations when the application doesn't really affect us. But how about when it does affect us? What then? I know that there are some of you here this morning with us who would like to have faith in Christ. You would like to believe in him. Maybe you've been coming for weeks to our church services and you'd like to believe, but you struggle because you still have questions. You wonder whether you could ever believe. Maybe you're waiting for some special feeling or some scientific evidence to convince you. Or maybe you've simply come to church all your life because your parents took you as a child and you haven't owned your faith with personal belief. Or perhaps you've gone through hard times and that's shifted your thinking a bit. What does it mean to have faith anyway? I mean, what is real belief? What is it made of? Well, we're talking about these things this morning as we continue our study in the book of Joshua. And if you know the story of Joshua, faith is everywhere. Especially in our section this morning from Joshua chapter 2 on through Joshua chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to the sixth book of the Bible, the book of Joshua. Now remember, Joshua is a bridge book describing the transition from the wilderness wandering to conquest and settlement in the promised land. You know, as I mentioned last week, this book is one of the historical books of the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean it's meant only to inform us. I mean, Joshua is written in the Bible to convict us and to comfort us, not simply to catalog history. So we need to ask ourselves as we read it, what is the writer preaching about when he is telling this particular story? I mean, he has a message to proclaim truths about God to impress upon us. Specifically, we'll see three truths pressed upon our hearts from our passage this morning. Three truths. The first is that believing is trusting God's faithfulness in the present. Believing is trusting God's faithfulness in the present. Second, believing is remembering God's faithfulness in the past. It's remembering God's faithfulness in the past. And third, believing is hoping in God's faithfulness in the future. Believing is hoping in God's faithfulness in the future. Those three points will serve as our outline this morning as we look at this text. So let's start with the first point. Believing is trusting God's faithfulness in the present. I mean, imagine for a minute the Israelites wandering in the desert. They had left Egypt, and yet for 40 years they were walking around in circles in the desert because they had chickened out after a report from 10 scared spies. Since then, the whole generation has died off, 
And yet, after all that time, all that walking, all that sand in their shoes, all that sunburn, all that anticipation, the dream was still alive. And now they're on the verge of the promised land once again. I mean, imagine their excitement, imagine their anticipation. I mean, perhaps you personally can relate to a time when you were eagerly anticipating a day. I know I distinctly remember several days of my life. I remember one day when I was a child staying in a hotel room with my family in Los Angeles. And I remember laying in bed awake half the night anticipating that the next day my parents were going to take us to Disneyland. And I couldn't wait. Couldn't wait to meet Daffy Duck and Mickey Mouse and Goofy, to eat good food, to ride roller coasters. And I just couldn't wait. I was so excited. And of course, I remember the days leading up to my wedding day. We would just count it down each and every day until it finally got there. September 21st had arrived when I'd be united with Gloria in marriage. Well, for the Israelites, this was it. This is the big day. This is the day they've been waiting for. This was the promise made 500 years earlier to Abraham, to their father's 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 father. See, Joshua and Caleb are now in their 80s, the only ones left from that generation. The promises had been repeated time and time again, and now the moment had come. And so Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And so in chapter 3, God brings them up to the edge of the Jordan River. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. So Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Now it seems like simple instructions, but there was a problem. See, down in verse 15, we get a little weather update. We see that the river is in flood stage. During most of the year, you could cross the Jordan River. There's some brush on the ground, the waters were low, and you could simply walk across, but not now. It's springtime, and the water is raging. When was it that God led Israel through the Jordan? Well, precisely at the time of year when such a feat looked and was impossible. Why does the God of the Bible insist on them fording the river at the most difficult time? 
I'm not sure exactly the reason, but we see this trend throughout the Bible, don't we? That God delights to show his might in the face of our utter helplessness. Perhaps God wants us to see that we contribute nothing to our deliverance. And so to understand the truths found in Psalm 121, that our help comes from the Lord who made the heavens, who made the earth. And notice how God calls his people to trust him. There's not a sturdy bridge there. He doesn't say go out and test it to make sure it's strong enough for you to cross. In this case, he doesn't even part the waters. No, in faith, he calls them to step into the flowing waters while the waters were still raging. So often we're willing to follow God after he's cleared the obstacles in our path. But see, that's not really biblical faith. No, God calls us to follow him and we walk by faith and not by sight. Friend, if you're struggling with faith, don't wait until the coast is clear to step out in obedience to God. This is what we mean by taking a step of faith. You've seen what God is doing and you trust that he is real and you trust that he is faithful. I mean, think about the Jordan crossing. God is going before them. The people of Israel were reminded in the present that it was indeed God who'd go before them, that they were not alone. God showed this by having the Ark of the Covenant go in before them in the river. Now, the Ark represented God's very presence. It is the most cherished thing they have, and God says to walk it right into the river. It wasn't very big. It was a gold box about one meter long, one meter high, one meter wide. And inside the Ark contained three symbols of Israel's relationship with God. There were the tablets of the Ten Commandments. There were Aaron, the high priest's rod. And there was a jar of manna reminding the people of God's presence with them, his provision for them. The ark was carried by priests on poles placed through the rings attached to the sides of the ark. The presence of God symbolized by the ark, we see cut off the waters and allowed Israel to cross on dry ground. Look at verses 15 through 17 of chapter 3. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carry the ark reach the Jordan and their feet touch the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a great heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon, while the water flowing down to the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground ground. Once the people of God had stepped into the flowing rivers by faith, God promises to keep them as they obey his word. And instantly he stopped the river. So they passed on dry ground. It was another Exodus type miracle. Now friends, believing is trusting God's faithfulness in the present. When there are dry times in our faith, we take courage by what God is doing in our lives. 
I mean, wouldn't it have been silly to doubt God's providence for them as they were crossing across this river? As you sit back today and hear this story, do you see God doing things in your life today? I mean, if you can't see it right now, do you believe that it's true? Do you take it by faith that God is finishing the good work that he started in you? I mean, think about the evidences of grace in your life right now. I mean, consider this church gathering that we're at today. I mean, this is a means of grace. I mean, maybe we're not watching the Dubai Creek pile up in a heap next to Maktoum Bridge, but this is truly amazing. I mean, right here in the center of the Arabian Peninsula, we find ourselves with at least 60 different nationalities gathering together, worshiping the risen and reigning king. I mean, each week, these gatherings are historic. These moments will never, ever happen again. Hundreds of us gathering in the center of Deir on a Friday morning in downtown, in the highest population density in our city, in the most populous city in our country, a city at the crossroads of Europe and Asia and Africa. And somehow, somehow in God's grace, he brought you here. I mean, think about that. For all your past circumstances, all your job troubles, all your family issues, All your life circumstances, God in his grace brought you together with other believers to worship the risen king here in the Middle East. And I love hearing stories of how people have come to our church, people just stumbling in through the hotel lobby, people on the streets watching people carry Bibles into the hotel, coming in to be with us, people staying in the hotel. I love it out at our Christmas Eve service. We must have had a few dozen people just staying in the hotel, seeing banners of our church come on in to be with us, to hear the message of God. And so we sing songs like, Great is thy faithfulness. And we do that because he is faithful to us. It is by grace that I'm here. It is by grace that you're here. It is by grace that we're here together. And it's grace that we celebrate new life in Christ on Friday and 14 different people as we saw them baptized. God's faithfulness to make ready the bride of Christ for the marriage supper of the Lamb is simply astounding. I mean, consider the fact that you woke up this morning. Consider the fact that God's mercies are new to you again today, that he has sustained your very breath, that he has given you the ability to eat, to have transportation, to get here. No matter how early your day was started, no matter how interrupted your sleep was, God has given you another day. His mercies are new. God is faithful in the present. Believing is trusting God's faithfulness in the present. But our passage also shows us a second thing about belief. A second thing. Believing is remembering God's faithfulness in the past. So it's not just believing his faithfulness now in the present. The second point is believing is remembering God's faithfulness in the past. See, getting through the river isn't the end of it all. You must remember what happened there. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. And he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. 
In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. We observe a certain assumption in these verses. Namely, that the greatest enemy of faith may be forgetfulness. So Joshua says you must remember what God has done. And these stones are to serve as a, as a visual aid to that end. Well, friends, do you have stones of remembrances in your life? Do you reflect on God's grace in the past? If you don't, there are several things that you could start doing today. One, maybe journaling or writing down your prayers would be an encouragement to you. Writing down what God has done. When you write God's faithfulness down in the future, you can draw on the storehouse of God's care for you. Or you could write down stories of God's faithfulness each year. Maybe take time on your birthday or your wedding anniversary or even your spiritual birthday. I mean, this past week, Chris Lejeune celebrated his third spiritual birthday, marking three years since he became a Christian. And if you can remember the day you were born into God's family forever, this is a great occasion to look back at the work of God and to document his grace in your life. You can spend time on a date with your spouse or dinner with a family member or a friend and simply discuss God's faithfulness in your life. To talk about what God has done to encourage your own soul and to encourage your friend or your spouse or family. And you can make it a discipline each day as you meditate on the gospel in your devotional time. And this is exactly why we don't move past the most remarkable act of faithfulness. We never get over the gospel. That's why we often say the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. No, as Tim Keller has said, it's the A to the Z of the Christian life. We never move on beyond this great story of redemption, that God saves sinners. It would benefit us all to slowly meditate on this truth throughout our week. And furthermore, in our passage, Israel must not only remember for themselves, while that's important, look at verse 6. It says that they would use this to teach their children to remember. The 12 stones were meant to provide occasions for teaching. They were meant to impress the truths upon the next generations of God's mighty act in the Jordan. It was meant to be on their minds. I mean, you can almost see it now. You can see a scene from this time, 15 years post-Jordan, An Israelite father and a six-year-old son just strolling there through Gilgal National Park, enjoying the scenery. When the little lad sees the pile of stones and he counts them, one, two, three, eleven, twelve. And he says, hey daddy, what are these big stones here for? And the son's curiosity now becomes the occasion for communicating to him the good news of God's faithfulness. I mean, parents, you were meant to point your children to the work of God. You were meant to point your children to God's faithfulness in the past. So I ask all, all the parents here in our congregation, have you set up stones of remembrance in your household to point your children to Jesus? One couple I know has a plaque engraved with their wedding date on it. 
This plaque is set up on a big rock on their property. But also on this plaque was a second date years after their wedding. The second date is the day they were both reconciled to God and each other after an affair. And below these dates are inscribed Bible verses about God's faithfulness to forgive our sins and to shed his blood for them. This couple had set up a way to remember God's faithfulness, to redeem, to restore their marriage after a difficult and horrific time in their lives. Now, we don't all need to make plaques. We don't all need to gather stones and make monuments. But we could put thoughtful energy into remembering the work of God in the life of our family and in the life of our church. And besides more monumental things is the occasional stone of remembrance. Beyond that are traditions that parents can start with their children as a means of remembering. And fathers, are you instructing your kids in the gospel? Are you reading your Bible to them regularly? Are you telling them about what God did in the past to provide salvation? That though they've sinned against the holy God, that though they deserve death, God has provided a way to save them through Christ's death. I mean, dads, do your children know that your hope is in Christ? Do they know that when your work is stressful, that you have peace in Christ Jesus? Dads, do they see in you faithfully taking a day off, faithfully taking holidays, that you trust God? Do they know that when finances are tough, that Jesus is your sustenance? Do they know that when you're discouraged, that Jesus is your joy? Dads, if you are a believer, do your kids know your testimony? Your testimony is the story of how God saved you. Do your kids know how God has saved you? If not, tell them. Tell them today. Tell them often. Tell them often about how God has saved you and how God is working in your life. Tell them about your struggles. Tell them about how faith in God is delivering you from the things of this world. And mothers, the same is true for you. Are you creating structures with your kids that point them to Jesus and the gospel? Do you merely try to get through each day, or do you deliberately put things in place to teach and remind your children about the goodness and faithfulness of God? Parents, if if you want resources, if you want something even just to start today in terms of reading to your kids, uh, I had... Uh, Chris picked up about 30 new children's Bibles and resources that we have at the end of the bookstall. I think it's on the right side if you're looking directly at it. I think we have 10 copies of the Jesus Storybook Bible, 10 copies of God's Big Picture Bible, 10 uh, devotional guides that you can walk through with your kids. If, if you don't know where to start, I encourage you to go pick up one of those today. I'm currently going through with our kids in the morning through Jesus Storybook Bible. We just take one story each morning. We read through it. I ask them, a few questions, and then we pray using that story as a basis for our prayers. So take a look there if you need a place to start. Because see, our youth ministry and Redeemer Kids, it's not a replacement for parental discipleship. It was never meant to be. In fact, we believe that the Bible is clear that parents are to be the primary disciplers of their kids. These ministries exist to come alongside parents to supplement what's happening at home. So friends, if you're a parent, if you're a mother or a father, don't miss out on this key ministry as a parent. 
And if you're separated via distance from your kids for a time, I encourage you not to miss out on the opportunities you can still have, whether it's when you're with them or from afar, to encourage them, to preach the gospel to them, to remind them of what Jesus has done. And if you don't have kids, are there things that you're doing to spread the message of Christ to the next generation? Maybe that's serving with Redeemer Kids or with our youth ministry or just serving families in this church by watching and loving and teaching their kids of the good news of God. Now our hope and prayer is that a new generation of faithful believers will rise up here in the UAE. In fact, Joshua gives us an example of what a faithful believer looks like. A faithful believer that we should aspire to, a faithful believer that we should pray that our children are like. And it's the most unlikely of heroes, isn't it? It's Rahab, the prostitute. Look back at chapter 2. Joshua sends two spies into the land to scout it out. And they go to Rahab's house. Now why would they go there? Well, we don't know exactly, but think about it. If you want to sneak into a town, you're not going to the center of the city. You're not going to City Hall but a place like this to hide and to fit in. If you want to blend in with other men who are coming and going, where people aren't going to ask questions, this is where you go. You go here to hide, perhaps to find some information. But these aren't the most accomplished spies. They're rather terrible, pathetic, really. They're the world's worst spies. I mean, they can't even hide for a day until they're found out by the authorities. But they find grace at Rahab's house. Rahab helps the spies, and she hides them. Now, if you came here today looking for me to talk about whether it's okay to lie, I'm sad to say that I'm going to leave you disappointed. So we won't discuss it because the text really doesn't discuss it, doesn't comment on the lie. No, God wants to draw our attention to something else in the passage. Look at verses 8 through 13. This really serves as the heart of chapter 2. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. The writer is not very interested in picky ethical questions, endless wranglings and discussions about whether it was right for Rahab to lie to the Jericho police and so on. Now, getting getting caught up in her lying is like looking at the Mona Lisa and getting caught up with a smudge on the picture frame. Now, instead, Rahab is seen as our illustration of faith. I mean, she has heard stories of this God and she began to believe in him. And in the things that he has done. 
And she was a Gentile who it was incorporated into the people of God. It's no accident, accident that when James chooses two living examples of faith in chapter 2, he chooses Abraham, the father of the faithful, and Rahab, who, like Abraham, had renounced her country to follow God's promises in the future. And then in Hebrews 11, which Chris read for us earlier, we see that Rahab has a place listed among an example of faith. See, her faith was grounded in the work of God in the past. She said in verse 10, we have heard what God has done. Faith is not just a warm, cozy feeling about God. Faith grows out of hearing what God has done for his people. And we marvel at the extent of Rahab's faith. I mean, Rahab put her life on the line. She risked her life for the spies. The punishment for her treason would have been torture and imminent death. Rahab also repudiated her past and her own people. She wasn't loyal to her city. She wasn't loyal to her earthly king, to her people. No, she was loyal to her God. She's loyal to her new faith in this God who she now believed in. And furthermore, Rahab affirmed that Israel's God had dominion over all the heavens and over all the earth. See, she was a Canaanite, and they worshipped many gods who ruled the earth, including Baal and Asherah and others. But she believed that this God was the only God who had supremacy over the entire earth. All this Rahab believed because she had heard what God had done in the past. And she was amazed by it. It transformed her. Now friends, do you find yourself this morning discouraged? Are you struggling to believe? Are you despondent? Well, look at what God has done in the past. And may it draw you into faith today with joy. If you're here and you're a Christian, consider the fact that you were chosen in Christ before the very foundations of the world. And consider your forgiveness in Christ. Spend time today meditating on the fact that to deal with your sin, the spotless Lamb of God interposed His own precious blood on your behalf. Individually, as you sit there as a believer in Christ, consider that Christ's death was done on your behalf behalf. Remind yourselves of these gospel truths. I think C.J. Mahaney sums it up well when he says, reminding ourselves of the gospel is the most important daily habit we can accomplish, we can establish. If the gospel is the most vital news in the world, and if salvation by grace is the defining truth of our existence, We should create ways to immerse ourselves in these truths every day. No days off allowed. It's like us waking up in the morning and saying, I am redeemed. No, my life and ministry isn't easy, but I'm redeemed. No, relationships with people around me don't always work the way they should, but I am redeemed. Yes, I live in a world that is broken. Yes, my body at times aches, but I am redeemed. 
Yes, ministry may be tough. I may face opposition as I share the gospel, but I am redeemed. Well, friends, as a believer in Christ, you have been redeemed, saved by the blood of the Lamb. Consider those truths in the past. May it give you faith and encouragement in the present. I also love Tolian Chavijan's words when he says, Christian growth, in other words, does not happen first by behaving better, but believing better. Believing in bigger, deeper, brighter ways what Christ has already secured for sinners who trust in him. God's faithfulness in the past fuels our love and worship in the present. Well, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Christ. Maybe you're saying, I'll consider believing once I see a visible sign. Think about Rahab. How much information is enough information? When is enough enough? I mean, too often we use lack of information or lack of sight as an excuse for lack of belief. But more knowledge rarely leads to a changed heart. Some of you are saying, Dave, I need more time. I need more sermons. I'm still doubting the resurrection or the Bible or God's love or Jesus, his deity or whatever else you're struggling with. And I would say to you, my friends, if you've ever looked up to see the sky or felt the heat of the sun, then you have seen and experienced enough of the common grace of God who created everything and is worthy of your worship forever. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For in his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, friend, ask God to help your unbelief and repent. Turn from your sins and cling to Christ. If you do, the Bible promises to save you and give you everlasting life. Psalm fifty-one seventeen says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. O humble yourselves before the Lord and you will receive mercy in Jesus Christ. Because a truth that we see throughout the Bible is that we are all like Rahab. None of us are different. We all live in a corrupt and degenerative world. We are all sinful harlots, unfaithful to our God. And like Rahab, we don't deserve God's grace. But like Rahab, we have heard of the work of God. And so our response must be like Rahab's. And see, Rahab is an encouragement to us because God delights in showing grace to the least deserving, doesn't he? See, Rahab was a Gentile a foreigner. And according to Ephesians 2, she was without hope and without God in the world. She was also an Amorite. They were singled out with particular condemnation for their sin. They were a vile and corrupt people. 
even sacrificing their children in their depraved religious practices. And the text says that Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab had nothing going for her, humanly speaking. And yet God saved her. This is good news for all of us, isn't it? It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what happened last night. Christ has come to save anyone who would come to him. If he came for the righteous alone, it would be like saying hospitals were only for doctors and nurses and x-ray machines and not for the sick. No, the church is not a club for the righteous, but it is a refuge for sinners. For sinners who have been revived by the grace of God. For sinners who have been born again by the grace of God. For sinners who have been given new life by the grace of God. God came to save sinners. And the Bible doesn't hide this. I mean, in Matthew 1, when we read the genealogy of Jesus, who do we find right there? Rahab. In fact, she would marry a man named Salmon, and their son would be Boaz, who married Ruth. Their son would be Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. This message is simply scandalous when we consider it, but this message is not that we work our way to heaven. It's not that we're good enough to get to heaven. It's that God showers grace on the least of sinners. That Jesus is going to be the Savior of all who come to him. And Jesus himself would come in the line of Rahab. I mean, consider in the line of Rahab that Matthew sees Rahab as God does. As a trophy of God's divine grace. Now Rahab's experience is parallel to that of everyone who comes to God through faith in Christ today. We are all corrupt, all have our reprehensible sins, but God has set his hand on us. He has made his great saving acts in history known to us. He has called us out by faith. Now believing is remembering God's faithfulness in the past. But believing is a third thing. Finally and briefly, the third point is that believing is hoping in God's faithfulness in the future. Believing is hoping in God's faithfulness in the future. Now the Israelites had hoped in God's faithfulness. Their language in our passage indicated this. They intentionally say, when the Lord gives us the land. And then at the end of chapter 2, Surely the Lord has given the whole land into our hands. It hadn't happened yet, but they knew it would. They had high hopes that God would fulfill his promises. It was as good as done in their eyes, and they hoped in God. Now, Christian belief and hope is like this. We have hope not in the sense of something we desire and don't know whether it'll happen, but hope in something that we know is a coming reality. And part of believing is hoping in the promises of God and most of all in trusting that heaven is on its way. And you see, you don't need a more comfortable and easier now. We need forever to reshape our here and now. We're reminding ourselves of the hope of heaven each day is like a vaccination against the disease known as eternity amnesia. Paul Tripp says we have eternity amnesia when we forget that we were made for God. 
That some of us need to step off the treadmill of our busy lives and consider what life looks like when viewed through the lens of forever. See, Christ in heaven awaits. He is the diamond in the ring. We long to see him face to face, to be perfected in his glory, to plunge into his sweetness and to be swallowed up by his grace. And it's coming. Friend, as a believer, it is coming. No matter what you face on earth, no matter what you're going through this very minute, it is a done deal. When Jesus lay there on the cross and said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. I mean, think of Paul's words in Romans 8 when he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now friends, God has been faithful in the past. God has been faithful in the present. And God will be faithful in the future to do everything he has said that he will do. But friends, if you have not taken the step of faith today, take it. Because there is a difference between merely knowing the truth and tasting it deeply. And being here this morning, all of us know the truth. All of us know it intellectually. As we leave those doors today, all of us know it. It is now in our minds. But there's a difference between knowing it and tasting of it deeply. For example, it's the difference between knowing about honey And actually tasting honey and tasting its sweetness. I mean, you may believe that honey exists. You may have heard about it, but that's different than actually taking a spoon and dipping it into the honey and discovering that honey is good and sweet, that honey is delicious. It's the same with Jesus. You've heard this truth. You know it intellectually, but have you tasted in its sweetness? Have you enjoyed sweet fellowship with God? Now, friends, may today be the day that you walk in fellowship with this king. Your life will never be the same here on earth and forever in eternity. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in the past to choose us and to save us by the blood of Christ. Oh, we thank you for your faithfulness in the present, for giving us life, for giving us this church, for giving us our present ministry, for giving us our families, our friends, our neighbors. Oh, Father, we praise you for your faithfulness in the future. Father, we look forward to that day when we will be at your banqueting table, delighting in you for all eternity. We pray all these things. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.